Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. And this week, uh, we are coming from Hart Towers for a change. Hart Towers, surrounded by pictures of Earl Haig. And washing. And washing, yeah. <laughs> the family washing. Uh, oh, it's lovely. I've forgotten. I'd forgotten the tiger room. Arr, arr, tiger room, yeah. Or just the ordinary living room. Anyway, 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 anyway. Uh, we've got a, we've got a treat for you today. Uh, this is going to be broadcast near the anniversary of, uh, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. So what are we doing today? We're doing Gummacore, which is, uh, an interesting attack. We're not going into any great tactical level are we we're not going to uh, get into the controversy about the generals we're just going to say what happened really are we in a cornish accent no cornish accent most of it is pretty unpleasant so our fans will be delighted to know that once again we're buttoning it we'll have a stupid generic north midlands voice that's me and we'll have a stupid cockney voice that's you i thought they were both you (laughs) so what's going on what's going on well Earl Haig, no, he wasn't Earl Haig there, good start, good start, Pete. Yeah. Uh, Haig, General <laughs> Haig, <laughs> proposed a diversity attack on the Gomacor salient, that's a sticky out bit for those who don't know, uh, a little further to north from the main Somme battlefields. Uh, the idea was to try and get some measure of tactical surprise um, by diverting some resources to this. Unfortunately, uh, it doesn't work, does it? But never mind. And the Spoiler. proposal eventually results in the attack by Third uh, Army, which was commanded by your old favourite. General Sir Edmund Allenby. The Bull. Yes. I wonder why I was called that. Now, even before the attack, there were difficult problems to overcome. What were they? Well, in front of Gomacor, uh, No Man's Land was an excessive... 800 yards, bloody hell. That's a lot, I mean, that's pushing on for half a mile. Yeah, which would have left any assaulting troops under fire for far too long. So what did they decide to do about it? I mean, they will have done something. Well, they thought it was worth running the risk of exposing thousands of men digging a new line in the middle of that no-man's land. They'd do that at night, I presume. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, this would have the additional benefit of clearly demonstrating an intention to attack. And after all, the assault on Gomacall was a diversion. Yep, the the new trenches are marked out, and work begins on the night of twenty sixth of May. It's it's a it's a huge undercut. I mean, it's it's a big job, big jobs, as you would say. Um, it, they had to uh, dig two thousand nine hundred yards of trenches, um, and uh, and uh, is that all? Do they just need a front line? 
Well, no, that was serviced by a further 1,500 yards of communication trenches. Now, they're covered by darkness, but are they safe in the dark? Does, does the night time protect them? No, I mean, they are incredibly vulnerable to an outbreak of German machine gun fire or uh, or guns should the alarm be triggered. Yeah, the artillery could just open up and del- deluge no man's land with shells, couldn't it? Yeah, now, despite the risks, all went well, and by sheer hard graft, they'd managed to cut the distance across no man's land to around 400 yards. Still, well, that's some going. It's, it's good, but it's still a long way. I mean, 400 yards is quite a long way. Uh, uh, I suppose I'm looking at it from the perspective of uh, having to get across there. Um, yes, in, in the circumstances that they'll be crossing, yeah. Now, uh, so these new trenches and the aggressive posture of the uh, the two divisions involved, this is the 46th and 56th divisions, we'll come back to them a bit more. Uh, the, 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 these preparations are clearly obvious to the Germans. Uh, how do the Germans react? Well, they bring up another division to face the obvious threat to the salient. Now, as Lieutenant General Sir Thomas Snow, commander of the parent 12th Corps, reported to Haig, they know we're coming, all right. We've heard of uh, Sir Thomas Snow. He was uh, the chap who, who was rude about the uh, digging camp. Yes, he yes. was 4th Division commander there. Uh, now, so the, oh, was the devotion working? Well, in some ways it was, but uh, uh, they, they didn't bring up the division from the Somme area. They brought it up from elsewhere so yeah now so they're getting near the time of assault and german shells start to rain down on the british front lines what are they trying to do well they're basically trying to spoil the preparations for the attack that they know is coming now um it it's all very well for us but what was it like in those trenches and you've got a quote from private albert atkins of the seventh middlesex regiment so you can do it in your normal uh cheery london voice I think you'll find it's going to be that all the way through wherever they're from. Yeah, that's right. Quite right, too. Imagine yourself standing in a trench with water well over your knees, crouching against the side of the muddy trench, while thousands of unseen shells come shrieking and whining overhead, and most of them dropping with a crash on the parapet, or paradoxe means either at the front of the trench or, or behind, followed by a terrific explosion which temporarily blinds, deafens and strikes one dumb. Even if you are lucky enough to miss being hit by one of the thousands of pieces of red-hot shrapnel, the concussion is sufficient to knock you over. Imagine yourself being slowly buried by the displaced earth which falls down on you like rain and half-drowned by the water in the trench. And while in this predicament, the shells continue to rush over. Each one approaches swiftly with a gradually rising crescendo, nearer and nearer until it reaches a wild hissing shriek. Then it it seems to stop suddenly. There is a very slight pause. Then crash! It bursts with a tearing, rumbling, blinding crash, sending tons of earth into the air to fall back on the inmates of the trench and hurling thousands of red-hot splinters in all directions, killing or maiming all whom they happen to strike and all around are men moaning in agony or lying still on the ground. Now, this is what they're putting up with uh, pretty well on and off uh, all the time at the 7.30 on the 1st of July 1916. Now, who are these two territorial divisions uh, that, that are going to go in the attack. They're third arm, part of, we said, uh, Eighth Corps. Um, now, wh- so take me through, uh, what, were they, what are they trying to do? Well, there's no intent 
of, uh, of breaking through or of rolling up the German lines. It's designed to attract the fire of German artillery and infantry that might otherwise busy themselves by interfering with the northern flank of the main assault at Serre. Now, uh, so it, it's, uh, the plan is for a standard pincer attack. They're going to pinch out the Gomacor salient uh, and force the surrounding, uh, the, the German garrison in the salient to surrender. So they're not attacking all the way around the salient. They're just attacking at the, what would you call it, the shoulders, I think. Uh, so, who, so, so who's coming in from the northern flank? That's facing Gomacor Wood. Who are they? Well, that was, as you've mentioned, the 46th North Midland Division, which was required to break into the German lines and then form a strong defensive flank to block any German counterattack launched from the north. They were also to rendezvous to the south with the other pincer, which was supplied by the 56th London Division. Now, the 56th Division, they're to break through and seize the German third line uh, and consolidate there before a second assault would swing round through a, a, a fortifications called the Maze and the Quadrilateral to make their this rendezvous with the 46th Division. This is a, a bit close to home because I, I, I was educated in Chesterfield. That's part of the 46th Midland Division, the, the lads there in the Sherwood Forest, isn't there? Uh, and the uh, 56th Division, near London. That's where you're from, really. Well, when you're not being uh, everything else you are. Now, this was an extremely ambitious plan for the German defences around the Gommacourt salient were amongst the strongest on the whole Somme front. In what way? Let's go through it. Let's go through the how it is. Why are they so strong? Well, it was a complex interlock system of trenches and communication trenches were centred on the maze lying to the eastern side of the village while three further additional defensive switch lines isolated the whole salient in the event that the uh, British successfully... So they're sort through. of like communication trenches, but actually defensive trenches, so uh, defendable, uh, so, so they can cut off an area. Mm. Now, most of the garrison would be preserved, uh, what by? Uh, it was a comprehensive pattern of deep dugouts. I mean, the Germans, you know, they, they knew how to build defensive lines, Pete. They did. So uh, the shells often wouldn't strike home they'd still cause a lot of casualties but they they, they might do not be as much as they looked as if they were causing um now um there's a problem also in the nature of the of the british barrage now what what is the problem with the british barrage well, although there was a strong force of medium and heavy batteries uh, that had theoretically de- been devoted to counter-battery fire, this was undermined by the small allocation of ammunition to that task. Just, get this, 20 rounds per gun. That's not enough. Uh, but there's something else, Gary, something else that's missing. What is that? Well, it, even worse than that was uh, only one aircraft allocated to them for aerial observation. For the whole of the counter-battery. I mean, compare this to we've been doing a series on the Arrows Air War. It's very different, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as a That's result... a year later, isn't it? Yeah, most of the German batteries in the Gomacourt area survived unscathed. Now, the British had they got another problem, because there's always a risk in these narrow-focus attacks that you'll be fired on from... Uh, from uh, well, unengaged German troops and artillery, they were to the, well, in this case, the east, north and south of the, of the salient. Um, so how do they try and conceal what's going on? Well, an attempt was made to generate a smoke screen across the front of both attacking divisions at 0720, bearing in mind that the attack was 10 minutes so later. 10 minutes before. Now, this, this is unfortunate because on the 40, oh, this is my, 
hometown division, but never mind. Uh, the 46th division, uh, it, it, it seems to cause as many problems as, uh, as it, it solves. Uh, the, 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 there's a combination of thick smoke clouds and, and a maze of old trenches, new assembly trenches, assembly trenches to where the troops uh, go just before they go in, over the top. It gives them, because there's no room for, for. You mean where they assemble? <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Right. You're always there for me, aren't you? Uh, and they're littered all across no man's land. And the troops found it very difficult to get the correct alignment, get themselves sorted out, ready to, to attack. Um, there's another problem facing the 46th Division as well. What's that? Well, further belts of barbed wire had been reported. Uh, and, and They'd been reported been reported clear, clear yeah. sorry, yeah. But they'd, they'd been mostly patched up by the Germans overnight. And they once again posed a serious obstacle to rapid progress. Well, it's as if those Germans were not trying to help. And it's as if English isn't my first language. Well, it's, it's neither of our first language by the sound of things, uh, as, as some of our critics have pointed out cheerfully. Now, when, um, the, when the British assault began at 0730, the German troops were very soon out of their dugouts to occupy the mishmash of trenches and shell holes left after the British bombardment. Well, the, and then the, the smoke clouds start to disperse in front of them. And uh, they can see what they're aiming at. And the, the 46th uh, uh, Division come under really heavy and effective small arms and machine gun fire. Uh, but but something else also opens up. Well, the real damage is uh, is done by the artillery. Well, that's showing that the, the consequences of inadequate counter-battery fire. A year later, uh, at the, the Battle of Arras, on the first day, they took out nearly all the, bat- the German batteries that could reach the target area. But uh, here, they didn't. The, the 5.9 batteries opened up. The shells slewed across no man's land. Uh, what, what does, how does that impact on the attack? Well, it's almost a complete failure. The only significant incursion into the German lines was made by the 1st, 5th and 1st, 7th Sherwood Foresters. Now, what happens to them? Well, they were quickly isolated and a debilitating confusion over the organisation of a combined renewed attack and reinforcement ate away at time deep into the afternoon until eventually... Well, that's, that's five or six hours. Yeah, yeah, so they've had to abandon the whole idea. Uh, what happens to the very few 1st, 5th and 1st, 7th Sherwood Foresters? That's a Nottingham, I should have said, that's a Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment. Yeah, that's their posh name. Yeah, I mean, the, the surviving Sherwood Foresters are hunted down one by one like rats in a trap. Now, we're not really focusing on them, because we, even in a two-division story, you haven't got time in a... 50-minute podcast to deal with everything. So we're going to deal in much more detail with the neighbouring 56 London division front. Um, now, uh, do they have an easier crossing of no man's land? No, nope. German artillery reacted equally violently to the first wisps of the smoke screen that curled towards them across no man's land. So not even before they go out. Uh, so this is 10 minutes early when the smoke starts. Wow. Absolutely. And this is what rifleman Frank Jacobs of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade had to say about that. Before we started off, we sent up dense clouds of white smoke, under cover of which we started attacking. The moment the Germans spotted this, they started with their artillery, putting up a wicked barrage of fire, heavy shrapnel at regular distances of about 20 yards, covering every inch of ground. They put one in no man's land, one over the front line, another over our reserves, and others right along the communication trenches. This is lines of bursting shells. Well, um, smoke, uh, 
Does it help against the... Well, it certainly doesn't deflect shells, does it, from the mass German artillery. Doesn't it? No. You can't see through it, is it? Um... Well, they, did, they didn't need to see to be able to kill their enemies. After all, they knew exactly where they were and also where they were going. Now, at 0725, the leading assault companies move out of the front line and form up on the tapes or assembly trench or whatever they're using laid in front of the British front line, ready for the final whistle. And this is the cliché blowing of whistles. Uh, uh, the whistles blow at 7.30 and the assaulting companies disappear into the smoke that's wreathed all of... Wreathed, I've got my tenses wrong. <laughs> wreathed their mats lapped. Um, now, from the trenches behind them, this looked amazing, uh, but somewhat daunting, I'd say. And you're going to give us the views of Lance Corporal Sidney Appleyard, 1st 9th Queen Victoria's Rifles. It was the finest spectacle I've ever seen. The smoke varied in colour, and as each cloud intermingled with the other, it formed beautiful tints. By this time, the artillery had lifted and carried on with the pounding of the Huns' rear positions and batteries. Mr Fritz was by no means taking this line down, and we soon realised that he had almost as many guns as we had, but it was chiefly heavy stuff that he sent over, and this led us to suspect that he had shifted his field guns back. The wood and all the enemy's trenches were now obscured from sight, and all that could be seen was the front waves of men advancing to their unknown fate. Line after line advanced and disappeared in the clouds of smoke. Now, the men couldn't see what was happening in the smoke, but uh, what, what do you think gave them the clue that things might be dangerous? Well, the crescendo of noise, the uh, percussive effects of shell explosions and the rattle of the machine guns gave them every clue that they were engaged in a truly desperate business. And this is what Private Henry Russell of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade says. When we advanced beyond the smoke screens, we became uh, uh, an easy target for the German machine guns. I saw many of my colleagues drop down. This somehow or other did not seem to worry me, and I continued to go forward until suddenly I became aware that there were very few of us in this first line of attack capable of going on. I found myself in the company of an officer, Lieutenant Wallace. We dived into a flat, shallow hole made by our guns. Apparently both wanted to decide what we should now do. Lieutenant Wallace asked me whether I thought we should attempt to go on or remain there for the time being. That is not what officers are meant to do, but never mind. Thinking the position over very rapidly, I came to the conclusion and told him that going on would be suicidal and the best thing we could do would be to stay there and attempt to pick off any Germans who might expose themselves. We were not very clear as to how we were situated. Lieutenant Wallace said, however, that we had been ordered to go on at all costs and that we must comply with this order. At this, he stood up and within a few seconds dropped down, riddled with bullets. This left me with the same problem. And having observed his action, I felt I must do the same. That is not how we would react, I'm afraid. And uh, brave man, Uh, both of them. Uh, I had thought that a man who could stand up and knowingly face practically certain death must be very brave. I think he is. <laughs> I found out that bravery hardly came into it. Once the decision was made to stand up, I had no further fear. I was not bothered at all, even though I believed that I would be dead within seconds and would be rotting on the ground, food for the rats next day. I am now convinced that when it comes to the last crunch, nobody has any fear at all. It is not a question of bravery. In some extraordinary manner, the chemistry of the body anaesthetizes it. 
Wow. I stood up and was immediately hit by two bullets and dropped down. I did not even feel appreciably the bullets going through. Now, I want to make it quite clear that this is one man's reaction. You can hear I don't agree with him. Uh, however, I respect that's how he felt. And, uh, and, um, the human mind's a strange thing. And, and that's what he's saying. The human mind just somehow switches off. Yeah, and not only that, his wounds were obviously serious. And as the German shells continued to crash down between the lines, he was hit again as he lay there helpless. Yeah, that's terrible, isn't it? It was only much later at night that he'd be able to crawl back to the British lines. Amazing he could crawl. Now, um, as the attacking waves push forward, despite these heavy casualties, the survivors are getting closer and closer to the German front line. And this is what Private Arthur Schumann, 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade, says. Officers led the way, most of whom dropped immediately. Machine guns seemed to crackle from every direction. I kept my head down as low as possible, helmet tilted to protect my eyes, but I could still see men dropping all around me. One on my left clutched his stomach and just collapsed. Another, a yard to my right, slumped onto his knees. The din was terrific, stifling any screams. Entangled wire had to be negotiated. Just one opening on which the German fire was rapid and most accurate. Not many of us got through. The journey seemed endless, but at last a number of us fell into a German trench. Now, as we've seen, uh, not, many just don't make it. It's a maelstrom of bullets and ripping through the, the, the helpless, hapless, helpless, hapless, both of them, uh, Londoners. And I'm going to be Sergeant Frank Hawkins of the 1st 9th Queen Victoria's Rifles. Shells were bursting everywhere, and through the drifting smoke in front of us, we could see the enemy's first line from which grey figures emerged and hurled hand grenades. We moved forward in long lines, stumbling through the mass of shell holes, wire and wreckage, and behind us more waves appeared. As we neared the enemy line, a low-flying shrapnel shell burst right, that's quite difficult to say, burst right over my head, completely deafening me. I ducked and slipped headfirst into a shell hole. Simultaneously, several more shells burst close around. We must have been in the midst of a Hun barrage. I felt a sharp pain in my back, and my next recollections are of a medley of Huns and Queen's Victoria's rifles at close quarters with bomb and bayonet. The tide of battle rolled on as our fellows forced their way into the German trench. Hun trench, he says, sorry. And when I recovered my wits, I found myself bleeding profusely from a wound in my left forearm. There was also a patch of blood on my breeches from the wound in my back. I was by this time completely dazed and half deafened, but had sufficient sense to appreciate in which direction lay our own front line. I next found myself sliding headfirst into that old line among a heap of mangled bodies. Again, wow. Mm. Now, in general, although the British artillery had been unable to suppress the German guns, they had at least managed to cut the barbed wire along most of the 56th Division front. The leading troops, reinforced by the following waves, managed to overwhelm the resistance offered by the surviving garrison of the German front line. They could then see for themselves the effects of the British bombardment. And once more, this is what Rifleman Frank Jacobs says. First, fifth, London, Rathgate. I love him. Uh, the place was nothing but a mass of shell holes, some small, some huge. Huge 9.2-inch shells lay there, unexploded, and the whole place had been smashed to atoms. The German first line, 
was but a ditch, and as we had expected, there were very few Germans there. These held up their hands, crying, Kamerad, Kamerad, and some were taken prisoners, and some were shot. We went on over the second line, and so, and, and on, until we came to the third. This was our objective. Immediately we got there, we started consolidating the trench. An awful job, for it was smashed out of all recognition. Well, as we've seen, that he, that this second, as he, he's implying, the second line is soon overrun, uh, and on, and on, 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 Gary, on to the third line. Um, what do you think happens as they get deeper into the uh, the, the German defences? Well, we've said this before. The the the, the resistance stiffens, uh, but the Germans were turfed out and forced back to their next line of defence at uh, a place called Nameless Farm. I love the British imagination when it comes to, to uh, what's that farm called? Oh, I don't that know. That shall remain nameless. <laughs> now, this is what Sergeant Donald Hawker of the 1st 16th Queen's Westminster Rifles says. Between the second and the third lines, we were delayed for some moments by uncut wire. And from this point, considerable numbers of enemy troops could be clearly seen evacuating their support trenches and retiring hastily to their rear. They presented an irresistible target to our men, who got down behind the wire and opened a strong fire. We now came under a heavy shrapnel fire, and the noise was terrific, rendering fire control difficult. Captain Mott, having found and enlarged a gap in the wire, gave the order to cease fire and push on. It was at this juncture, I believe, that he became a casualty. It was for some moments difficult to communicate the order and to control the fire. I collected a party and advanced as far as a slight back of a raised road, which afforded some cover from a withering machine gun fire, which now enfiladed us from Gomacourt Wood. We had many casualties here, and while I was walking to a flank to determine our next move, I was put out of action by a shot through the neck and windpipe. I can't believe what it's like. Imagine being hit in the neck and windpipe. Yeah. Now, while the wounded made their painful and perilous way back to safety, the supported waves continued to push forward. And this is Lance Corporal John Foden of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade. The enemy was found in his dugouts in Feast. That's one of the lines uh, called Feast. I saw two taken prisoner and others shot or bombed. On reaching the maze, that's that main trench system we mentioned, uh, which was little more than large shell holes, I bore to the left and took up a position in a large shell hole. I was rather uncertain whether my position was correct, but Captain Harvey arrived and confirmed it as being so. There were about ten men at this point, which we, he- which, which we held and commenced to consolidate at once. Snipers were very busy and killed one and wounded two during the first two minutes. We were filling sandbags whilst lying down until there was sufficient cover to work our machine, our Lewis gun. I seem to be having trouble reading. That's a common thing with me. Now, heroic attempts were made to push on to the final objectives uh, and they were soon repulsed. The moment for further advances had gone and consolidation was now the all-important priority if they were to hold on to what they'd captured. That's right. And uh, it was at this point that really, if you remember, they're meant to be rendezvousing with the 46th Division. Uh, But their attack on the left side uh, of Gomacor has completely failed. And this begins to affect the prospects of the Londoners. And now we're going to take a short break. Hello, it's Battlefield historian Matt McLaughlin. If you're enjoying Pete and Gary's military history, you'll love our sister podcast, Living History with Matt McLaughlin. 
Every week we take you on a journey through the pages of history as we explore great battles from the past, we review history films, we do live visits to battlefields, castles and other great historic sites and we interview the world's leading historians. So please join us at Living History with Matt McLaughlin, available on your favourite podcast app. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. Now... Their initial failure had been so complete that the trenches were clogged up with corpses and the wounded being carried back by the hard-pressed stretcher bearers. Now, under such a strain, it's not really surprising that the up-and-down arrangements for their communication trenches soon fell apart, with the result that they were soon totally blocked and the fresh troops could not get forward. Now, worst of all, well, I think it's worst of all, that... that there's just a deluge of shells start to, to, to come from the, from the German batteries. Uh, not only in front of them, Gary, you've got to realise, but to the north of them. And they start to splatter all across the, the new British lines, the, 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 the bits they've got. As we liberals would say, liberally. Liberally, yes. <laughs> now, uh, the, 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 the 46th Division has failed, not necessarily entirely their own fault, but that means the Germans could concentrate 
on just the 56 division front. It's getting tighter and tighter, isn't it? Yeah, but and although the German front lines have been captured and parties were established as far forward as the maze... That's that place again, yeah. They were isolated and boxed in by the sheer awesome power of the German bombardment falling behind them and splaying across the length and breadth of no man's land. Splaying liberally. Splaying liberally. Now, the men who had uh, breached the German front line were in effect trapped, cut off from the British front line, cut off from reinforcements and the desperately needed new supplies of bombs and ammunition. Yeah, because there's no communication trenches, strangely enough, across no man's land, is there? Um, now, so what do the Germans do? What, what do, do the Germans, Germans always do? do? <laughs> they counterattack. Counter yep. Yeah. All sides pouring in. Um, so, so what's their, t- what's their tactics? Well, short, sharp artillery bombardments were followed up by probing parties of German bombers covered by snipers and uh, creeping forward inch by inch along the numerous communication trenches, ready to unleash a deadly flurry of hand grenades. Yeah, this is the old business of bombing, and it's a a murderous business, a murderous business. I well remember a reenactment work. I knew you were going to say that. Now... The Londoners, they needed to create a continuous defensive line, but for that, they needed reinforcements and hand grenades in huge numbers. But there's no, no, no communication. And what's happening in no man's land? Shells are dropping all over it. Now, Lieutenant Petley, he's just, he's just one of many officers in this situation. He's already been slightly wounded in the shoulder. That would have put us out, wouldn't it, Gary? Uh, and he sent back a, 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 a message from his outpost. He's in Eck Trench, E-C-K. Bah, what the heck? <laughs> um, back to the old British front line. He's asking for, what's, guess what? Supplies of bombs and reinforcements. And this is what Second Lieutenant, uh, Petley, R.E. Petley, of 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade says. I sent a message back to you about two hours ago to the effect that I am holding on to Eck Trench with about 40 men, including a dozen Queen Victoria's rifles and one Queen's Westminster rifle, and that I wanted more bombs. Quite out of touch to right and left, have held off Germans on our right with barricade. So, uh, are the officers back in the old front line? Are they insensitive brutes, uncaring? No, of course not. They appreciate the situation, but what exactly could they do about it? And this is what Lieutenant Colonel Vernon Dickens, 1st 9th Queen Victoria's Rifles, says. If we could have only got bombs over to them, I think they might have managed to hold on until dark. But the artillery barrage and machine gun fire put up in no man's land was so heavy that it was impossible for anyone to get across or live there. I ordered the reserve company, D, to try to get parties across. They made three attempts, but each time, all who started became casualties. I think you, you left a pregnant pause there for effect, didn't you, Pete? I did. I did not realise it was me. Now, simple courage, it's not enough to carry men through the curtain of shells falling in front of them. Efforts to dig communication trenches across no man's land were impossible under the heavy German bombardment. Now, the men trapped on the other side of Nomadsand, they're, they're going to have to fend for themselves, aren't they? And this is what Major Cedric Dick- Dickens? Different Dickens. What the Dickens is going on, he must have said. And, and he was of the 13th Kensingtons. And, and th- this next quote, which you're going to read, uh, it, it indicates the various desperate message which he sent back. And, and if by reading this and listening to this, you, we can chart the sort of 
deterioration of the whole bloody situation for these lads trapped in uh, in, in the, those front lines with the Germans. And this is what Major Dickens says. One ten pm shelling fearful. Mackenzie killed. Trench practically untenable, full of dead and wounded. Very few men indeed left. Must have instructions and assistance. One forty eight pm Sap absolutely impassable, owing to shell fire. Every party that enters it, knocked out at once. Captain Ware has been wounded somewhere there. I had just crawled to the end of it with London's Scottish machine gun party. Could not find him. One of the Scottish had his hand blown off. Our front line in an awful state. Two more men killed and one wounded. Estimate casualties to A and C companies, at least 25 killed and 50 wounded. Impossible to man large lengths of our front line. Digging quite out of the question and position of the Scottish serious. 2.04pm. I have as far as I can find only 13 left beside myself. Trenches unrecognisable. Quite impossible to hold. Bombardment fearful for two hours. I'm the only officer left. Please send instructions. Well, it's terrible, isn't it? Um, well, can they? Can they send instructions? Well, no, because the German barrage is, is cut most of the telephone lines that connected the assaulting battalions with the brigade headquarters that were behind them. Uh, what effect do you think this has? Well, it, it, it greatly contributes to the overall confusion. And uh, Signal William Smith was detailed to repair the telephone lines that led back to the headquarters of 168th Brigade. And this is what Signaler William Smith of the Signal Section Royal Engineers says. I'd just been temporarily knocked out by a flat piece of shell and had been attended by a stretcher bearer who had then left me and prece- proceeded on his way back to a dressing station whilst I went further on down the trench to get on with my job. Ah, good. Good, good bloke. I had not gone many yards when I met a very young pilot of the 12th Londons. One of his arms was hanging limp and was, I should think, broken in two or three places. He was cut and bleeding about the face and was altogether in a sorry plight. He stopped me and asked, Is there a dressing station down there, mate? Pointing along the way I had come. I replied, Yes, keep straight on down the trench. It's a good way down, but there's a stretcher bearer only just gone along. Shall I see if I can get him for you? His reply, I shall never forget. Oh, I don't want him for me. I want someone to come back with me to get my mate. He's hurt. I should point out that he was a young private of the 12th Londons rather than pilot. Now, the communications with Brigade Headquarters were desperately important. It was only by keeping them properly informed that they'd know where to unleash the power of the British artillery, which was the only real chance of rescuing the situation. Well, I suppose so. Uh, what's happening with the Germans? Well, counterattacks raining down on the British. Uh, most of the Germans who were attacking were invisible uh, from from the perspective of the old British front line uh, as they were probing along the uh, tangled system of trenches, the former German trenches, the all the communication lines along the front line, along the second line, along the third line. They're feeling their way in from all sides, uh, not showing themselves much above the surface. Um, so what, what, what do you need? What do you need in these circumstances? Well, you need bombs, but, and there's no bomb, further supplies bomb, of bombs could get across no man's land. Improvisation was required from the trapped assaulting parties. 
So first, they gather up any of the British bombs. Where would they get them? Their bodies, or, or just anywhere that they, they were. They get them to where it was most desperate. So wherever the Germans were pressing the hardest, they'd try and get as many bombs as possible. Now, at the same time, diligent efforts were made to locate any remaining German frontline bomb supplies in the areas that they'd overrun. Yeah, the German, that they hadn't used. They were still there. Uh, demand still outstripping supply, though. Uh, what's the de- what's what's the last ditch desperate thing they could do? Well, men took incredible risks. So you'd never even con- you know we, you'd never even consider it if you're in the cold light of day. And this is uh, our friend Private Arthur Schumann of the First Fifth London Rifle Brigade again. The Germans were in the same trench, slinging over stick bombs from both flanks. I must have been really mad, for in the heat of the moment, I quickly picked up a stick bomb, certain that I had sufficient time to throw it back. But the trench being so high, it hit the top and fell back. With two or three others who were near me, we had to nip into the next bay very smartly. Bloody hell. Ah, it's amazing, isn't it? The German threat is greatest to the right, which has not been engaged at all, because there's nobody, you know, the 46th of them were on the left. And this is where the London Scottish had attacked. Uh, 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 it, it, it's very easy for the Germans there to organise counterattacks. Um, I don't know, in, 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 in relative calm. Uh, and the pressure was just beyond endurance. And this is what Captain H.C. Sparks of the first 14th London Scottish says. I am faced with this position. I have collected all bombs and small arms ammunition from casualties. Every one has been used. I am faced with three alternatives. First, to stay here with such of my men as are alive and be killed. Two, to surrender to the enemy. Three, to withdraw such of my men as I can. Either of these first two alternatives is distasteful to me. I proposed to adopt the latter. In other words, run away. And, 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 you know, run away or die. That's it, isn't it? Um, so they can't hold the ground, can they? No, and as the London Scottish began to fall back across no man's land to the old British front line, a domino effect was generated as the Germans bombed their way along the lines until neighbouring positions were untenable. Yeah, uh, all along the, the line, you, you get isolated Officers and NCOs, of course, uh, they're left with no choice but to pull back to, uh, they're falling back from where they'd taken back to the first to the back to the old German front line. Um, but, and, and you've got to think if you got to the German third line or into the maze, it's going to be really difficult to get back, isn't it? It is. And, and who am I going to be? Well, you're going to, to tell us what Lance Corporal John Foden of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade. At 4pm, Sergeant Hember ordered us to withdraw also, but there being no communication trench, I told him we could not do so until dusk, as we had our Lewis gun and heavy packs of small arms ammunition. Enemy bombers appeared in fibre, another trench, and threw bombs at us. I opened fire with a Lewis gun, whereupon the enemy threw up his hands. I took this to be a ruse and fired again. This occurred on three occasions. I then retired towards the maze, taking the gun with me. I saw the enemy again there, there, and once more fired. I was now covering a large shell hole in which were Sergeant Hember and 14 men. Having but two grenades, we decided to try and reach the rest of the battalion, so I stripped the gun, rendering it entire, uh, rendering it useless, entirely useless, I presume, to the enemy. 
The premature explosion of one of our grenades wounded Sergeant Hember and five others. I then decided to retire with the remainder and get reinforcements. Uh, and this is a sort of chaotic situation. A bit unlucky one of their own grenades went off prematurely. That doesn't help, does it? Now, soon they'd fallen right back to the German front line and they'd nowhere left to go but a, but back across the no-man's land. Right back to the old British front line. So The London Rifle Grade, Brigade were the last to be forced out. And once more, our friend Private Arthur Schumann of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade takes up the story. By now, I was just petrified. I knew that if I stayed in the trench, I would have most certainly been killed. I hardly waited for the order, but it came. Everyone for himself! I did not wait to argue. Over the top I went like greased lightning, surviving a hail of bullets. I immediately fell flat. Then, trying to imagine I was part of the earth, I wriggled along on my belly. Dead, dying and wounded, feigning death, who knows? The ground was covered with them. I sped from shell hole to shell hole. Never had I run faster. It was snipers, machine guns and shrapnel all the way. About halfway across, I rolled into a shell hole and fell on top of a badly wounded German in a pitiable state, probably an abandoned prisoner. All he said was, Schlecht, Schlecht, which means bad. I don't know what made me do it, but I gripped his hand and sped on. When I finally scrambled into our frontline trench, I was greeted by our adjutant, Captain Wallace, and Regimental Sergeant Major McVeigh, who both solemnly shook my hand. I was told that only 20 had returned so far. Now, more, more, there were more. I mean, this is the thing. This is the initial. He's one of the first back. Uh, uh, but a lot of them are still marooned out back in the hostile wastes of no man's land. I particularly like that story you just read because, because that human touch, that's probably the last human contact that bloke ever had. And it's just a nice moment within all that horribleness. I also liked your pronounced pronunciation of Schlecht, which is very, very good. Um, now, like a deadly game, they had to choose their moment to try and sprint back. Getting the timing wrong and the consequences were painful or indeed fatal. Now, this reminds me of when I was young and there was a, li- a brief fad in the 1960s for a game called Chicken where you used to run across the road uh, as close to possible as on- to oncoming traffic or weave your way through it. At uh, this, there were lots of people telling you you shouldn't do this, and I never did. Uh, although now I cross the road in that fashion because I'm stupid. But uh, it's what it's like. You're tra- it's, you, it's all about timing in a gap. The, the Germans stop firing for just a second. The, the oncoming vehicles, if you like, you have to dash between them. Uh, and this is what F- rifleman Frank Jacobs, 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade, said. It was either a bolt back with a sporting chance of getting through or else surrender. We turned tail and made a blind bolt back about 7.30pm. The moment we did so, they turned a veritable hail of fire upon us from machine guns and rifles. I got caught in the wire and sprawled headlong, tore myself free and then caught again. Once more I disentangled myself and then plunged into a shell hole and stopped there. How I got as far as there I knew not, for men were falling like flies. None who kept on in this rush for our line got through, so anyone who didn't stop in a shell hole and take shelter for a while. I suppose the gap in fire had stopped. Anyway, he says this. There were five of us in this shell hole, three wounded. I sat in a pool of blood and water until it started getting dark and then we crept out and back to safety. 
We spent over two hours in that shell hole, but so exhausted were we that even during that time we dozed. Imagine dozing off and no one's done in that situation. Now, around 21.30, the very last party of last ditchers were forced out of the German front line to take refuge in shell holes in no man's land as an interim measure before making the last desperate dash across to the British front line. Well, exactly like Jacobs. Yeah, that's 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 what... He's not alone. There's lots of them doing this, isn't there? Um, now, um, when the dust of the fighting, you know, is settled... The Germans make quite an unusually uh, magnanimous gesture to their uh, defeated opponents. What's that, Gary? Well, they they allow a truce to collect the dead and wounded, Pete. Now, what do you take from that? Because I know what I think. Well, I think that's just humanity. It's just showing, you know, that they they realise they're all in it together. Yeah, I think that's nice. Uh, and you also- wanted me to say uh, magnanimity, minimity, didn't you? <laughs> I did want you to say that. You could tell for him. Well, no, the point, but it's a serious point. Just the fact that the Germans could be, I'm now going to try magnanimous. That's easier, isn't it? Um, showed the, the, just the comprehensiveness of the defeat that the London Division and, of course, over the, the, the 46th Division had suffered. Um, uh, this this truce takes place on the uh, the the second uh, of July. Um, it it shows that the Germans are willing to let them collect the the wounded. They've won, haven't they? Uh, now the number of British guns assigned to a counter battery role proved totally inadequate to meet the massed artillery fire of the German divisions, not only to their immediate front but also from either side of Gommercourt, and that resulted in the 46th and 56th Divisions facing the heaviest concentration of artillery fire of any sector assaulted on the 1st of July. That's not all, is it? Because the narrow width of the front means that the the German troops on either side of the assault could pour in machine gun from to, to murderous, deadly effect from both flanks, as well as the firing from in front. Uh, well, so there's one really big question. What Can you guess what that might be? Well... The Third Army may well have totally failed to achieve its local objectives, but had it achieved its wider tactical justification of diverting attention and resources from the main assault? Well, here I think, again, there's a bit of a disappointment, isn't there? Because uh, although the very visible offensive preparations over the previous month had caused the German forces to strengthen, that you know, they brought up a division. We mentioned that earlier. But... Uh, the actual attack when it came was rebuffed entirely from within the local forces in Gomacor. Uh, they did not attract any forces at all from uh, the, uh, the defence of uh, the, the further south. Uh, so that meant there's no troops detached from Serre or Bowman Hamill, they're the next two in. Uh, none whatsoever were diverted down to Gomacor. Uh, so what in the end do we think of this attack? Well... The attack had been useless and the men of the North Midlands and London battalions had suffered terrible casualties all in vain. The 46th Division lost 2,455 casualties, while the 56th Division bore the brunt with 4,314. Over 6,700 casualties between the two divisions. That is shocking, shocking. Uh, It's not... uh, it, It just shows sometimes... It's not a, a bad idea to have a diversionary attack, but is it worth that amount of casualties? This is a serious error of judgment. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you've got to be certain of is that the diversion actually attracts what you want it to attract and and uh, doesn't just become a, a, a battle of attrition in its own sense. A slaughterhouse. Very short battle of attrition, <laughs> but a slaughterhouse, certainly. Well, that's it for today. Um, what have we got to remind you to? Well, uh, I, I believe uh, we have a Gallipoli uh, thing to remind people of. What's that, Gary? Well, by the time this is heard, we will have returned from our first trip to Gallipoli for a couple of years in May. Uh, and uh, it's not too late should anybody want to accompany us on our trip that leaves uh, 29th of August this year or indeed uh, let us know of interest in uh, any of our trips next year which will probably be a similar time of the year May and September Jews, yeah. uh, we'd love to have people along uh, we, we, we can't wait to get back to Gallipoli it's a fantastic battlefield we love every minute we spend there and our good friends the local guide Bolent Yorkmus and, and all the people at Crowded House who, who do it do a fantastic job, don't they, in looking after us? Protecting us from ourselves, I think, is how they describe it. <laughs> I, I also think, Pete, we should mention, uh, although it's been out some time now, your uh, your latest effort, um, Burning Steel. Burning Steel, that's it. The, 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 the uh, Tank Regiment at War, 1939-45. That's based on the Fife and Forfire Yeomanry, second Fife and Forfire Yeomanry. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, I'm going to do the third Magnanimous. tank regiment. I'm going to do the third tank regiment next time. Yeah, something easier. Uh, but uh, we, you, you can follow that. You can buy the book. We can also follow that story in our podcast. And we're looking forward to the next one, which should be coming up soon. All right, Gary. Well, thank you very much for accompanying me. And uh, cheerio, mate. Yeah, cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?